Chapter 11 Special Zones and Other Variations Freedom to reject is the only freedom. Salman Rushdie, writer. Free private cities correspond to classical liberal minimal states operated by private companies. For many, this is too little, but for some, this is already too much state. Both groups can be helped. The operating system, free private city, can cover a relatively wide range of political preferences. If a private administration is not enforceable, it is still possible to implement at least parts of the concept through a special zone or a de facto private city. 1. More State A free private city does not necessarily have to be designed as a lean night watchman state. It is easily conceivable to extend the operator's mandatory basic package to cover a wider range of state services. More services, more regulation. For example, additional urban services such as garbage collection, water, and electricity could be included in the package, as well as health and pension insurance and other social contributions. Nevertheless, the operator does not have to provide these services himself, but can make use of private subcontractors. Furthermore, it may be desirable or required by the host state that certain areas are regulated from the outset. This concerns, for example, approval requirements for all types of environmentally relevant projects or licensing for certain professions, vaccination requirements, or compulsory school attendance. In principle, these and other regulatory preferences can be taken into account by drafting the citizen's contract accordingly. With regard to both the extension of services and the extension of regulations, it should be noted, however, that this limits the freedom and room for action of the residents. Ultimately, the question of the optimal mix of services and regulations will be answered by the market. Whatever is not in demand or leads to insolvency will disappear. Changes by committees Some operators may also conclude that rule changes are unavoidable, but that the path through judicial development by way of court judgments or arbitral awards is too tedious and lengthy. In this respect, certain bodies could be set up to decide on these amendments. Such bodies may be external agencies that have no self-interest in a particular outcome of their activities because they are not located in the city itself. Alternatively, such bodies could, of course, be composed of representatives of the residents, landowners or business people, or they could be freely elected. It should be noted, however, that such bodies tend, over time, to take on more and more powers and gradually devalue the citizen's contract. The precondition is, therefore, that there is a core area of the citizen's contract that cannot be changed and that the areas accessible for rule changes are kept as small as possible. Otherwise, this body will become a legislative body with all the negative side effects and consequences that we know from parliamentary democracy. Democratic Codetermination If democratic codetermination is desired or required by the host state, but the operator wishes to avoid the negative effects of a mass democracy, the following is conceivable. Each resident undertakes to acquire at least one share certificate in the operating company. Certain facts, including changes to the rules within the framework permitted by the citizen's contract, can then be entrusted to the decision of the shareholders' meeting.
As in stock corporations, this body decides on amendments to the Articles of Association by a possibly qualified majority of capital. There is an incentive for the respective minority and majority shareholders to vote for a positive development of the entire city because otherwise their shares will decrease in value. If this is still not enough democracy, a second procedure can be added to the shareholder democracy described, the so-called corrective democracy. If the shareholders have taken a certain decision on the rules applicable in the city by capital majority, then the contract citizens can call a referendum on it within a certain period and reject this decision by majority vote. The change is then omitted, or the operator must try to find another regulation that is capable of gaining a majority both in the shareholders' meeting and among all residents. This corrective democracy grants only the right of veto. It is not possible to make your own proposals for amendments or rules in this way, like voting oneself a subsidy or higher pension. In this way, the disadvantages of democracy can be avoided while still achieving some modicum of co-determination. Public instead of private The decisive element of a free private city is the citizen's contract, which should define at least one core area where unilateral changes are not possible. Another essential element is the existence of a private operating company, irrespective of whether it belongs to all residents, a company, a single person, or is in free float. After all, for incentive reasons, this society must have a profit motive and a certain degree of regulatory autonomy. In many states, this model may not yet be enforceable for political reasons. Interim solutions will be needed. The closest way to the concept of a free private city is to replace the private city operator with a public corporation whose management and monitoring bodies are appointed by the host state or elected by the residents. Alternatively, a mixed form could be constructed as a kind of public-private partnership, for example by the private operator being supervised by a state or elected body. What is decisive in all cases is the existence of a citizen's contract with each individual, which sets the direction for the delegated or elected representatives, but also prevents them from interfering too much in the legal position of the residents. 2. Less State The realization that a non-voluntary society always leads to abuse of power is most widespread in libertarian circles. In this respect, it is not surprising that numerous proposals have been made from there as to how state alternatives can be designed on a voluntary basis. The corresponding models cannot all be discussed in detail, but the most important elements of non-governmental system proposals are discussed below. A monopoly of regulations, but not of force. In order to remove the possibility of abuse of power from the outset, it is proposed that rules be laid down which all residents must accept while renouncing a monopoly of force. Instead, competing security companies must be permitted, which are forced by competition among themselves to perform well and not to abuse their power. Such an approach is basically possible in a free private city, whereby the rules for police measures, to which the security providers must also adhere, are laid down in the citizen's contract. However, the operator must ensure that there are several security providers in the city area 
and that all citizens have an appropriate contract with a security company. The same applies to the outsourcing of enforcement to insurance agencies. As long as no insurance company offers this in practice, it remains a thought experiment. In principle, however, all models which, on the one hand, provide for the rules to be laid down by the operator and, on the other hand, do not give the operator any powers to enforce them, have an execution problem, particularly with regard to the expulsion of persons from the city or dealing with out-of-control security services. Neither a monopoly on regulation nor on force. Proposals that provide neither a regulatory framework nor a monopoly on the use of force go even further. The residents themselves should decide which law they want to be subject to. Over time, rules would be worked out to regulate how conflict situations between the customers of different legal and security providers could be resolved. In theory, this approach is also possible in a free private city, but the citizen's contract is then more or less dispensable unless the free choice of law and rules is restricted to certain areas. The operator could then earn money with real estate transactions and voluntary regulatory and security offers. However, the development of conflict rules could take years and organized crime could easily seep into such systems. The resulting inability of the operator to ensure security is likely to lead to the relative unattractiveness of such systems, especially for families and companies. See also the discussion in Chapter 17. Lease Models In order to solve these problems, lease models are proposed in which the operating company retains ownership of the entire land and can therefore exercise its corresponding powers of ownership at any time. The residents can only acquire ownership of the buildings. The situation is comparable to that of a homeowner's association. The profit motive of the company becomes secondary. The advantage, of course, is that the operating company is not only a service provider, but in a certain way the city par excellence. Goodwill is likely to be greater, especially if there are plans for later capitalization. Even in such lease models, however, the mutual rights and obligations must be relatively precisely defined in particular, the extent of respective property rights, house versus land ownership, so that this model does not differ fundamentally from the one represented here. The disadvantage, however, is that the residents have no right to acquire land. There will always be a trade-off. If I want to renounce all monopolies, then I must not grant myself a monopoly on regulation and land ownership either. However, it will then become difficult to impossible to expel troublemakers or to run the community in an entrepreneurial manner. But let the market decide. Ultimately, success will become evident in reality. Theories discussed for decades could be put to the first practical test in a competition of systems. Again, several models may work well and simply appeal to different target groups. 3. Special Zones if free private cities are not yet politically feasible, although the willingness for far-reaching reforms and new approaches exists in principle, it is still possible to take up at least individual aspects of the idea and apply them in a special zone. There are good arguments for this. A state that applies all rules uniformly across its territory, 
must always choose a certain path that can only be corrected after years or decades. Possible advancement may be paralyzed if not prevented. In the product and service market, startup companies can challenge established competitors with new products. This applies, in particular, when the majority and expert opinion does not initially grant such products any chance of success. This established and well-functioning mechanism can be applied to the market of living together. Special zones are created within existing national territories to which economically and politically divergent rules may apply. These are in competition both with each other and with the mother state, which retains its old regulatory regime. In order not to force something on anyone that they do not want, these zones are set up in sparsely populated or unpopulated areas. They are settled exclusively by volunteers who can identify with the rules that apply there. Previous residents can choose whether or not to be subject to the rules of the special zone. If you don't like what is being done there, just stay away or go to a special zone that suits you better. This allows everyone, even people outside the zones, to observe which models work and which do not. The establishment of special zones may also involve offering a valve to a dissatisfied minority or simply attracting investors. The latter is already common practice worldwide in the form of special economic zones. Their characteristics are mostly tax relief, investment protection, exemption from customs duties, and less regulation for companies. Economic freedoms are thus occasionally higher there than in the rest of the country, although other laws and personal freedoms are generally not handled differently. Special economic zones, however, show that special rules are possible for certain interests. So far, these are only economic interests, but there is little reason why this should not also apply to other interests in the future. It is therefore to be expected that special economic zones will also allow more and more deviations from the rules of the home country and will gradually be transformed into special administrative zones. Special administrative zones are areas that have special rights of their own. A classic example is Hong Kong, which belongs to China but has its own regulatory authority for most areas, its own government, and even its own currency. Overseas territories of former colonial powers such as Great Britain or France also enjoy the status of special administrative zones as they exercise their own regulatory authority. This is sometimes more, sometimes less, subject to the laws of the mother state. Certain areas, such as the British Virgin Islands, now have only the Queen of England as their formal head, but are otherwise autonomous. In addition to areas of colonial origin, there are also genuine new creations of special administrative zones, such as the Dubai International Financial Center. This is an intermediate form between the special economic zone and the special administrative zone. It covers an area of only 0.25 square kilometers. The zone was founded in 2002. It has its own legal status, with its own laws based on common law principles and its own independent courts. The corresponding legal texts are written in English. A similar situation applies to the Abu Dhabi Global Markets Special Zone, which was created in 2013. Honduras goes one step further with its ZD, an evolved version of a special zone. 
This evolution on a traditional special economic zone is modeled on Hong Kong's basic law and based on international best practices derived from successes in Singapore and Dubai. A group of Honduran leaders worked diligently and persistently for several years to bring this idea to fruition. The corresponding law was passed after the amendment of the Constitution in January 2013 with a clear supermajority of votes across party lines. ZDs are created at the initiative of domestic or foreign individuals and companies. In uninhabited areas, the consent of the landowners is sufficient to establish the zone. In other areas, referendums and the consent of Parliament are required. They allow the establishment of special legal systems, courts, and security forces. The mother state hopes that this will attract both foreign and domestic investors who have so far shown little confidence in the relevant institutions in Honduras. It is also attractive for Hondurans to live and work in such a stable environment. The aim is to create jobs, accelerate economic development, and improve the quality of life of Hondurans. The planned legal and administrative regime requires the approval of a state commission and is permanently monitored by that commission. Parts of the Constitution, as well as the international agreements concluded by Honduras and Honduran criminal law, continue to apply. Each special zone is headed by a technical secretary who must be a Honduran citizen and who is appointed and supervised by the state commission. He may also use private companies to manage the zone. The inhabitants of the zone can request a contract with the zone administration, which defines the mutual rights and obligations. Part of the taxes levied by the zone administration on its inhabitants is to be paid to Honduras. It is remarkable that any interested landowner can join the special zone at a later date. That is, the zones can grow. Several ZDs are currently being initiated. A similar model is currently favored by the Seasteading Institute in the Pacific, namely in French Polynesia. The establishment of a sea zone with a land share is being negotiated there, under conditions similar to the special zones in Honduras. The opportunities offered by ZDs in Honduras and possible sea zones in the Pacific are at least so far the projects to come closest to the ideal of a free private city. Such an area can be described as a special zone, free zone, special administrative zone, special economic zone plus, or super economic zone. Where even such an autonomous special zone is politically unenforceable, special zones for particular themes can be set up. For example, Special crypto zones could be set up in which attractive, reliable, and durable rules apply to companies dealing with cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies. New models of social security could be tested in a special social security zone, such as a purely capital-based pension insurance with the right to choose a provider along Chilean-Australian lines. The health insurance could also be similar to the one organized by Singapore, where they have only a basic liability insurance, equivalent to vehicle liability insurance. For any additional benefits, it is up to each individual to decide whether or not to take out insurance. It is also conceivable that new products could, in principle, be authorized in a special innovation zone without an authorization procedure. Different solutions to the migration problem could be tested in special immigration zones. 
Those who are poorly educated and have little or no command of the language of the host country are dependent on the low-wage sector to secure their livelihood. Where state-imposed minimum wages prevent the creation of such jobs, integration is not possible. Not even cheap accommodation can be built in many countries because the strict insulation and other regulations make construction exorbitantly expensive. All this would not be the case in these special zones because the excessive clog of regulations would be largely dissolved. Anybody willing to work and integrate and willing to observe the rules of the special immigration zone would be welcome. Certainly, there will be no getting around certain upper limits for reasons of space alone. Since participation would be voluntary in all cases, all special zones must grant each resident a right of withdrawal at any time unconditional right to exit. Anyone who is disappointed by the special zone can leave it again, be it because it does not live up to his expectations or because he rejects subsequent decisions by the administration or the elected representation, perhaps also because he is overwhelmed by life there. Competition will ensure that the best special zones are successful and the others disappear. And uninterested citizens do not have to change their lives, as everything else in the mother state would remain the same. History shows that the majority are attached to the status quo and prefer to maintain it. This need would be met by the creation of special zones. 4. De facto private cities Even if special zones are not a politically feasible way, the establishment of quasi-private cities is still possible. These are settlements that are located exclusively on private property. The landowner, as city operator, concludes a contract with each settler which stipulates the resident's intent to comply with the rules laid down there. The contract could also include the requirement to use only the intended dispute settlement systems and also to accept the establishment of a security service and its powers. Failure to do so would then result in termination of the contract and loss of the resident's permit. Examples of such de facto private cities are the American Homeowner Associations or regulated private cities such as Weston or Celebration in Florida. This category also includes libertarian startups such as the Norwegian project Liberstad. Of course, all state laws continue to apply in such cases, but at least in the areas of security, dispute resolution, and social harmony, a more pleasant coexistence can be achieved through this arrangement. Furthermore, the inhabitants could successively try to establish their own parallel systems in the area of education and social security in order to avoid the existing systems as far as possible within the framework of the law. The creation of their own cryptocurrency is also conceivable. The operator's ability to refuse applicants, although this contractual freedom is increasingly restricted by the state, and to dismiss those who break the rules allows positive selection. Amish settlements in North America or the Mennonites in South America are instructive in this context especially since they have managed, over time, to obtain a certain degree of formal or at least de facto autonomy from the state. 5. Migrant Cities According to surveys, about 700 million people currently want to leave their homes, mostly from African and Arab countries. 
By 2050, the number is expected to rise to 1.2 billion people who want to migrate due to population growth in these countries. Their preferred destinations are wealthy Western states. On the one hand, this is understandable from a human point of view, but on the other hand, the sheer number of people willing to immigrate is so high that, if it were to happen, it would threaten to put even stable, industrialized countries in a precarious position. Conflicts are unavoidable. Migrant cities based on the model of free private cities are a potential solution. They offer a reliable legal framework and the possibility of acquiring real estate, importing and exporting goods, and setting up companies in an uncomplicated manner. These are precisely the conditions that are usually lacking in immigration countries and hinder economic development. Migrant cities, therefore, have the best conditions for ensuring a safe life, a new community, and economic development for refugees and migrants in their own cultures. They also attract companies and service providers from nearby areas and from all over the world who are interested in stable conditions and new markets, but have so far avoided the areas in question due to political risks. The establishment of such a territory requires agreement with the respective government or, if its influence in the intended area is doubtful, with local rulers as well. It makes sense that such an agreement should not only be concluded between the operator of the private city and the host state, but that other states should also sign as guarantors of the migrant city. For example, the parties will agree to comply with human rights and international agreements in the city. For example, to prevent human trafficking, money laundering, and the like. Nevertheless, the attractiveness of private governance should not be underestimated. Acceptance is likely to be much higher than if other states take over direct administration of the territory. No country likes to have foreign powers governing part of its territory. In addition, the host state could be granted a share in the operating company of the private city, which would ensure a say in the shareholders' meeting or participation in any later dividends. Military security would be indispensable in crisis regions in particular. Following the Swiss example, the migrant city itself would have to be strictly neutral and refrain from interfering in conflicts. Therefore, external security should not be guaranteed by local forces, but by international security companies. This is particularly true if one wants to avoid a foreign military presence. If other states have co-signed the treaty, however, they can provide a security guarantee for the migrant city. This alone will help to keep the neighbors in check. Within the city, internal security would inevitably be rather robust, especially in light of existing regional conflicts. In the citizen's contract, each resident would promise to observe the rules, which would include tolerance and the renunciation of violence towards people of different beliefs or religions. Violation of these rules would result in termination of the contract and expulsion from the city, including the stipulation that the resident return to where he came from. Precisely because different groups are to be expected in a migrant city that do not necessarily have a common cultural and religious understanding, it is essential to establish clear rules and to enforce them rigorously. A clear line provides incentives to act accordingly in order to remain in the city. That is also an opportunity as it would offer support and encouragement to moderate elements in the populations.
Ultimately, a migrant city will only be economically successful if, in addition to economic freedom, the personal freedom of those who belong to another religion or do not believe at all is guaranteed. Proving this connection in practice is an opportunity to take the wind out of the sails of religious and political fundamentalists. As in other free private cities, an annual fee would have to be paid for the service provided by the city operator. Newcomers without means could initially be granted a deferral of contributions, provided that fees be repaid at a later date as income becomes available. The migrant city would have to avoid the impression of being a charity community at all costs. It could not function as a refugee camp run by charitable donations or by the United Nations, but a city that lives from and through its inhabitants. A recipient mentality should not be allowed to arise in the first place. Those who, after the year and a day of residency, still refuse to pay contributions or take up work would have to be expelled. A migrant city that emerges from nothing can only be successful if its inhabitants are willing to work and contribute in substantial ways. In this context, it is important that migrant cities provide incentives for the settlement of highly educated people, entrepreneurs, and investors. Cities whose inhabitants are predominantly or exclusively illiterate will not succeed. For this reason, each city must be able to choose its own inhabitants in order to achieve a healthy mix of quantity and quality. If the private city flourishes later, further jobs for unskilled workers will automatically be created. The private structure of the city avoids the danger that, in the event of an election victory, the winner will favor his cronies or install a regime that endangers stability or drives away companies and investors. The very nature of the system precludes the emergence of political conflicts in the first place. There is every reason to believe that such communities will grow and flourish by guaranteeing security, committing themselves to the vigorous enforcement of law and contract, allowing personal and economic freedom, and keeping religious conflicts at bay. They can offer many people a perspective they cannot find anywhere else. In the event of success, the idea will spread. If they spread enough, migrant cities could make a significant contribution to mitigating the refugee and migration crisis.